I'm your host, Alex, and welcome to the Levantini Podcast, a show about Near Eastern history, language, and culture. To learn more about the show and get in touch, you can visit our website at levantinipod.com. Michael Fradley is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oxford and a landscape archaeologist. He was one of the co-authors of a recent study about how a remote sensing survey in southern Jordan identified at least three Roman military camps that seemed to reveal a previously unknown military campaign against the Nabataeans. You can find a link to the study in the show notes, and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, we're live. Thanks for being here. Oh, no worries. Great to be here. So let's kick it off by talking about what a landscape archaeologist does. Well, a landscape archaeologist, I mean, it depends on what landscape you're in and, and, and to a certain extent where you are around the world. Um, I come from kind of the UK tradition, which is the idea of, I guess, and this doesn't always you know, work as a, as a concept, but moving beyond the site, thinking about a site in its setting and its relation to other sites. Um, my background is really as a, a topographical surveyor. The UK has its own very kind of distinct tradition in that area, but also then bringing in kind of aspects of aerial archaeology, which again, um, the UK was one of the kind of originators of those concepts. So it's the idea of bringing together ideas of sites en masse, understanding them in terms of their, their natural environment, their topography, and trying to build new models, new understandings of sites and their relationships. Cool. And so how does that intersect with the, the endangered archaeology in the Middle East and North Africa project that you're affiliated with? Well, I mean, this is, this is one of these big data projects. It's this idea of a project that uses open source satellite imagery as, the kind of, as an economic resource that we can build on to, I mean, the project is very much focused on cultural heritage and its, its preservation and understanding trends of what's happening across the MENA region. But it's also, because we are systematically analyzing huge, vast kind of swathes of territory, we are, we are bringing in a kind of a landscape archaeology research element where, I mean, we're, we're only recording sites that we can see from a satellite image, but in doing so, we're picking up kind of trends that haven't really been noticed before because this kind of work, although it's been done in certain areas, particularly around you know, using declassified satellite imagery around the, um, around the Fertile Crescent, this is the kind of first time that a project has really been able to, and in here we're, we're very fortunate to be supported by our funder, the Arcadia Fund, who have been able to support us long term to kind of bring together data from across the region to start kind of both developing new models, um, but also in, in many cases identifying sites that haven't previously been documented, although in many cases they may be known to people who, who, who live on the ground in, in those regions. Right, so, so during a, a survey, of the, the Jordan-Saudi Arabia border that was carried out by by affiliated project, y'all found what looks like to be the remnants of three temporary Roman military camps. When you saw these, was it pretty clear to you what they were? Yeah, I mean, a quick correction there is, is actually I, I identified them first from the, the satellite imagery side, the Amina project. Um, although amazingly, you know, I, I think it was October, October 2022, I identified them. And just very fortunately, the Aerial Archaeology in Jordan project were flying with the Royal Jordanian Air Force um, a month later um, in late November, and they were able to photograph two of these camps. Sorry, going back to your question. Yes, although there were three camps, and I identified the easternmost camp first on a satellite image, and it was the most poorly preserved of all three. So when I first saw that, there was a hint of it, but when you're looking across these landscapes, you often find kind of relatively modern kind of work camps that are very rectangular, 
could have been the same. So at first I was like, oh, this is, there, there's something about this. It's got those rounded corners that you expect of a Roman encampment, but there was a very kind of poor satellite image or the site itself was relatively poorly preserved. And so it was only with the identification of the next, um, certainly the, the, the next one, the central camp, that suddenly, you know, your thinking is, oh, hold on, these two are, or they, they, they truly are identical, both in terms of form and size. And then because then we have, you know, you have two points, you have a line. And by following that trajectory, once I identified the third, I mean, without, without, you know, that kind of perfect evidence coming from an archaeological excavation of a site, you never say 100%, but with something like this, something so morphologically typical of the Roman army, you're going high 90s in terms of your, your, your certainty. And um, that, that's what it was. And then those aerial photographs taken um, the following month really just clarify everything. They, they give just so much more detail in terms of what's going on on the site. So for, for somebody who hasn't seen um, you know, the remnants of a Roman military camp before, could you describe what these look like from the air, how they were constructed, how long they took to build? Yeah, so, well, actually, I mean, oddly, you'd think in a, in a landscape where we know that the, you know, the Roman army was so active across the MENA region, you would think that there would possibly be more of these, but there, there actually aren't that many um, in the region, particularly compared to, you know, from a UK perspective, you find so many more kind of in the vicinity of Hadrian's Wall between England and, and what is today Scotland and into kind of Wales, particularly North Wales um, in the uplands there. So when we're talking about these encampments, this is a typical term is the playing card shape, that rectangle with those those curved corners. And with a, with a temporary encampment, you often find these titulous outworks. So like a small embankment outside of the one of the each of the four entrances. You know, you have an opposing en- entrance on the long side and opposing entrances on the on the short sides. So that's them in terms of their form. And depending on what environment you are, you know, in a in a temperate environment, they're more likely to be built of earth. And um, in this case, they're probably built of kind of gathered rubble walls. And um, we won't know for sure until they're visited on the ground. But that's that's the kind of basic form. And with these temporary encampments, because they are temporary encampments, um, there's often very little preserved in the interior. It's not like when we think of you know, your, your Asterix and Obelix kind of classic Roman fort full of buildings and, and other structures. They're relatively empty in terms of what we can see topographically on the surface. Although it should be noted, once we got those aerial photographs of the western and the central camps, there is the suggestion of kind of quite rectilinear kind of slight terraces on the interior, suggesting that maybe there has been some leveling of the ground for setting up tents um, on the interior. So they're, in a sense, they're, they're not much to look at, but because of that kind of, just of the exterior form of them, we can be so confident that these are Roman encampments. And how long would one of these take to build? Well, I guess it, it, it depends on, on what kind of forces with them. So in this case, you know, we, we, we're, and we'll probably come back to this, we're suggesting maybe a cavalry force. So in, in general, I think the, the idea is that it can be constructed within a, a day so that you have, you know, you're, you're not left exposed. But I'm sure there are more or less complex examples where, you know, depending on terrain and topography, maybe it takes longer. Or, you know, sometimes, you know, you can reuse something um, already existing in the landscape and maybe it's shorter. But yeah, the, the, the idea is that they can be constructed very quickly by a team that knows exactly what they're doing. And that's why we get this repetition of form in the camps, because they know exactly how they should be built. They know exactly where they, they should then be within the encampment. So given that these were temporary camps, you know, even if you look at the one at, at Misada, that's you know, pretty famous in the region, 
I'm curious to know how these stood the test of time. Is it just by nature of the arid environment? You know, because they're, they're so distinct from, from the landscape. Yeah, not so much the arid environment. So, so kind of the examples at Masada, you know, are different in the sense that they are, they are more like, I guess, siege encampments as opposed to a campaign encampment. Yeah, it's very much, it's, it's all about subsequent land use. I mean, that's, that's such a core of the Amina project. Our project emerged at a point where, you know, there were all these concerns about what was happening to cultural heritage sites, particularly at that time in parts of Iraq and Syria. But in reality, just not just in the MENA region, but in the UK, you know, in Europe, in the United States, the key kind of, you know, destructive force is agriculture, it's urban expansion. And these are things, as humans, we have to have, the, you know, we need to be able to feed ourselves, we need to be able to develop um, settlements. So in, 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 in kind of most regions, you know, we have a, a planning system that allows us to record things before they're destroyed. And, and that's what we don't often have in many countries in the MENA region. Um, but in this case, you're in an environment, it's not just the arid conditions, it's the fact that nobody has really inhabited it since. So these camps are in the, the southeast part of Jordan. So if you can visualize Jordan on a map, that kind of triangle um, in, the, in the southeast corner of the modern country. And it really is an empty, you know, it's, it's like a badlands. It really is an empty, very, very flat kind of mixture of limestone and chalk formations. Um, and across, we think of so many of these desert arid regions of being empty, but actually, even using remote sensing, we find evidence of activity, whether it's kind of cairn structures, you know, possible burial mounds, often kind of, you know, stonewalled enclosures that were used for kind of transhuman pastoral communities um, across time. And we find this all over the, you know, even, even on the edge of the Nefod Desert is really, you know, dense archaeological activity visible on satellite imagery. But in this corner of Southeast Jordan is empty. And in fact, when I was surveying it on, on satellite imagery, it was really the edge of an area that I was looking at. And I was just kind of, oh, I just need to kind of tick this off the map to say I've looked. So I wasn't expecting to find anything there was, which is why they haven't really been identified in the past. And, and it's just an incredibly empty zone. And because nobody's tried to build anything else in this area, nobody's tried to farm, nothing else, there's something quite stunning about the way that you have several of these camps in a row in a landscape where you can imagine walking through this landscape between each camp and you're pretty much following the line of the army. And the landscape around you is almost, un, you know, we often say this, oh, this landscape is almost unchanged, but there'll be things on the, on the horizon that have changed. But in this case, you're talking about a landscape that has always, even in the kind of, you know, the, the Holocene humid period, the, there is no evidence of the kind of Neolithic structures that we're seeing elsewhere in all areas surrounding this zone coming into this region. So it really is a barren zone. And it really kind of it provides more of an emphasis of how remarkable it is. The Roman army thought, oh, this is a good idea. We'll, we'll just cut through this landscape that nobody wants to live in. So, you know, as, as we touched on, there are remnants of other Roman military camps in the world and, and in the region, like, in, you know, in Britain or like we mentioned at, at Masada in Israel. So I'd like if you can touch on why this discovery was significant. What was kind of significant for us and, and the reason we were able to kind of take it very quickly and, and, and publish it was because, like I say, in our, in our project, we're often recording new sites that haven't been documented before, sometimes incredibly interesting, you know, very large settlements, things you might even call cities that haven't, you know, in terms of published archaeological works, haven't been documented before. But what was really interesting here, so if we'd found one Roman camp, that would have been interesting, but it wouldn't have made a paper. But what we had here was not one, not two, but three perfectly preserved Roman camps in a perfect line, 
almost equal distances between them. Yeah, they're all roughly, and sorry for, for using metric here, but roughly 40 kilometers between each encampment. So by having that line and being able to kind of talk about, oh, we can say exactly where they were going because of this line. So in those examples I mentioned in kind of in Wales and Scotland in the UK, there are so many of these encampments and often they're built as practice works. You know, the the army from a, a local station will go up onto the, the hills and they'll build a practice earthwork for when they need, need to do this in the field. And so you have this, even beyond Hadrian's Wall, you have this kind of jumble of encampments. So you don't exactly know what was going on, where they were going. But in this case, just through that that luck of preservation, because it is such an arid and, and difficult environment, you know, we, we can actually build out the story of what might have been happening here in a way that with just, you know, and, and there are a few other encampments um, in Jordan itself, but with those, you really are kind of left guessing, um, and some of them might even be contemporary with this encampment. But here we are able to kind of build out a story from the fact that they are so perfectly kind of positioned and preserved within the landscape. So, so to that point, where where do you think they were going? What was, who were they trying to potentially conquer? What what campaign do you, do you suspect this, this might have been part of? Well, yeah, so here's, here's where we get to the difficult part, because obviously within Roman history and, and the history that survives from, you know, its neighbours and contemporaries is that, you know, when, when there's a campaign, when there's fighting, it's often recorded um, within the sources. But here in this landscape, we have nothing. This is what would have been the Nabataean kingdom. And in terms of the, the official Roman history after 106 under Trajan, you know, the last Nab- Nabataean king peacefully kind of realises that it would be best for the kingdom if it is annexed by Rome, at least that's the, the official version. And there's no sense of a campaign. There's no, we don't have any kind of written record or inscription referring to, you know, generals um, active in the region. So, so we don't have anything textual to work from at the moment. But what we do do have is that, is that landscape context. So we can see that, so at the, at the western end of the camps, so another 40 kilometers to the west is um, a place called Bayer. So, Today, that's kind of a modern police point, and it really is the kind of the last thing that you will see between there and kind of the, the Saudi Arabian border. It's a it's a well station. So during the, the Great Arab Revolt in the First World War, you know, T. Lawrence and his team at some point encamped there because it's the only place to get water. And there was an Omeyyad fortification there, or what is believed to be an Omeyyad fortification. Unfortunately, that was demolished in the 1930s and hasn't really been investigated since. But there have been kind of various Greek, Latin, and Nabataean inscriptions from around there. So that suggests that that's also a point on this, this, this kind of trajectory, but may have been a more permanent station than these temporary encampments. Now, if we go a lot further to the east and follow that line, we get to the modern um, town of Dumat al-Jandal, which would have been Duma in um, the Nabataean period. And that really is the only historic settlement in the region. So it seems incredibly likely that that is the target of this campaign route through the desert. So going back to that idea of there being no kind of written history about what was happening here, we're suggesting that maybe maybe there, were, there was more conflict or there was more resistance. Um, and particularly, so if we think of the Nabataean kingdom, we think of Petra and all of those, those, those kind of major sites in, in the center of what is, is modern Jordan. But actually you have these, these peripheral um, towns which were in, or settlements which were incredibly important in terms of controlling that caravan trade, particularly obviously the spice route coming up from the south, but presumably other products as well um, coming in. And Dumat is one of them. Uh, Dumat al-Jandal is one of them. 
you also have places like Hegra and further to the south. And there's, you know, there's hundreds of kilometers between these sites and the other kind of places like Petra. So they really are on the edge. So we're wondering whether these settlements exist as kind of, they consider themselves maybe more as part of a federation of the Nabataean kingdom and as, is annexed by Rome, maybe they put up some more resistance or maybe more resistance is expected. And um, and in order to control this trade, um, the Roman army moves in. So we're, we're in terms of dating, we're thinking in the period immediately after 106. So going back to what you mentioned before about how it appears that the camps were made for mounted cavalry. So, you know, based on the size and location of the camps between each other, why does that support that that theory that this was meant for some sort of like mounted camel cavalry? Uh, well, well, it's against the distance. So, where the expectation is that these encampments were built after a day's march and and built at the far end of each each march. So, so forty kilometers. So that's roughly kind of twenty seven um, miles. Is is kind of too far for infantry, particularly over such a difficult environment. So. It seems fair to assume that this is this is a cavalry operation, whether that's horse or possibly with camel. And interestingly, you know, there has been evidence found in Demat al Jandal, particularly with the the French Saudi teams' excavations in that region, that they have found tombstones that they've been able to date to kind of one sixteen CE or maybe a little bit later. Some of them kind of Nabataeans with with. Or, or, or names that suggest a Nabataean origin of individuals who are cavalrymen, but then serving in the Roman army. And again, that supports the idea that certainly by that point, the Roman army was in was in that settlement, Demet al-Jandal, and, and that there were, as you might expect in such a, such a difficult landscape, that they are mounted in order to kind of uh, traverse between kind of poorly, across such a poorly watered landscape. That's interesting. You also mentioned that the position of the camps might have lent themselves to maintaining some sort of element of surprise in, in their campaign. Can you touch on that? Yeah, so again, you're going to have to kind of try and visualize the landscape. So as I said, this, this region of Jordan is kind of very barren, but to, to the kind of northeast is, is Wadi Sohan, which is a relatively well-watered um, valley that's kind of coming down from roughly around Azraq, um, so the well-known kind of desert castle site in eastern Jordan on the edge of the kind of black desert. And that would be, that valley would be the kind of route that you would expect the Roman army to take or any army to take because it's, you know, it's relatively well watered. It's, it's probably much easier to travel down. It, it probably was a much more kind of used route of trade and commerce from Damat al-Jandal up into the Nabataean kingdom. But traveling across this, this very difficult landscape from Bayer going uh, east would suggest that maybe either possibly kind of as part of a, a wider pincer movement, they're trying to kind of undermine any resistance in the Wadi Sirhan and kind of arrive at Tamat al-Jandal, having met very little resistance, possibly having kind of skipped past any any of the main resistance. I mean, interestingly, underneath the um, the desert castle at Azraq, there was a large temporary camp that was visible when kind of the Royal Air Force were operating in the region um, under the mandate in the 19 kind of 20s and 1930s. So again, it, it might it might be part of this same kind of campaign, but it suggests that at least one cavalry unit tried to kind of bypass this and hopefully take the town by surprise. Now, unfortunately, as these camps kind of meet the Wadi Sirhan, we don't have any more evidence of further camps kind of taking you all the way to the doorstep of the town. And um, whether this is because they no longer felt they needed to, and such you know they felt less vulnerable in a, in a in a better watered landscape, 
or perhaps, you know, the modern agriculture and windblown sands have covered up any evidence. We can't be sure, but certainly taking that route. And there's some suggestion that maybe there was a minor caravan route from Damat al-Jandal across the Bay Area and into the kind of southern Jordan. But if there was, you know, it, it must have been it must have been a trickle of either people having trying to reach that southern end of Jordan and faster or perhaps to avoid the kind of tolls that you might otherwise encounter traveling up the Wadi Sirhan. So you also noted there's a noticeable reduction in size from the western to the central camp. What sort of questions does that raise about about the the nature of the campaign or, or how it went? Well, I mean, again, I mean, much like our dating, you know, we, we are very much kind of in the in, in hypothesis territory in terms of this, you know, this following Trajan's annexation in 106 CE. But then you kind of always run the risk of becoming like an armchair general trying to kind of work out what exactly happened here. Now, the kind of the, the Hollywood version of this is that, you know, from from the Western camp, which is which is almost twice as large as the next two, something happened, you know, maybe they encountered the enemy, large part of their troop was wiped out, but you know, the rest managed to carry on. It's likely to be probably something more mundane, partly because the fact that if there was a remnant, they were able to carry on, still traveling 40 kilometers a day, still building their camps perfectly, which suggests that they were still moving for a force that potentially lost half its men and, and animals. Um, it's still moving particularly well. So, so we've suggested that maybe this is to do with the movement of water, that you have a larger camp at first to support holding both the troop but also the water carriers who are going to constantly be having to traverse east and west to take water from Bayer um, onwards until they were able to reach Wadi Sirhan. And it might have turned out that that wasn't necessary. Maybe they, that was a precaution. You know, it, it's difficult to know how well they would have known the landscape about what they would encounter. I'm sure they must have had some information, but that may have been a precaution. So that, that's all we can say. Or perhaps maybe even after that first encampment, maybe news comes through that actually... The forces surrendered or something at Damat al-Jandal. You know, maybe it was a, a brilliant plan that wasn't actually needed. And those, those kind of ideas actually would help maybe explain why, why this doesn't occur in the historical sources, because maybe there was nothing to tell, you know, um, for all the brilliant planning that must have gone into it. If there was no battle, if there was no victory, I mean, the, 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 the kind of converse of that is maybe it all went wrong and it was a bit of a disaster, but they managed to take control of Damat al-Jandal anyway. And again, nobody wanted to talk about it. But you, we, we, we were kind of getting to very speculative territory there. But I think on kind of balancing the probabilities, it's likely to be the mundane explanation that the change in camp size is probably something logistical more than, more than anything else. Although, you know, I'm happy to see a Hollywood version of this. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's very, it's, I mean, again, it's, it's very evocative. There's like, you know, the, these camps kind of disappearing into the desert. And finally, like I say, once you hit Wadi Sirhan, there are no more. So it's, it's almost, almost like a horror film, really, that something terrible happened before the end. But, but no, it's probably something much more mundane. Right. Well, look, I, I really enjoyed the, the study and look forward to continuing to follow, follow your work and see what else comes out on it. But for anyone interested in reading it, there'll, there'll be a link in the show notes to the study. And, and again, I really appreciate the time and, and look forward to staying in touch and, and seeing what else comes of this. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you, Alex. 